This episode of Is This Working is brought to you by the School of Life for Business and Emotional Skills for the Workplace. Welcome to Is This Working, a podcast that questions how modern work impacts our lives. The tools we use to work have changed drastically, but how we work hasn't. In this podcast, we explore how we can make work work better for us. We're your hosts, me, Anna Codorado, and me, Tiffany Philippou. This show isn't about the future of work. This is about what's happening in work right now. Hey Tiff, how are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. Very excited for the episode that is about to air. Yes, me too. Um, I'm super excited because today's episode is all about autonomy, which is something that we talk a lot about on this podcast. So it was high time that we did an entire episode about it. But even more so than that, I'm thrilled about the fact that we've partnered on today's episode with the School of Life which for anyone who doesn't know the School of Life, it's an organization that helps people lead more fulfilled lives. Um, we've both been fans of, of, the, of theirs for quite a long time. We've gone to their events and you've bought me some of the, they have kind of these cards for Serenity, which you bought me once as a gift, which I absolutely love. Um, but anyway, so today's episode is a conversation with Sarah Stein Lebrano, who is head of content at the School of Life. And she came on to talk to us about a white paper that they're writing about autonomy and freedom in the workplace. And the conversation we had with Sarah is one of my favorite kinds of chats about work because it was equal parts philosophical and practical. So basically work therapy, but for work as a whole. Yeah, it was such a great chat. And I think it's, as Sarah says, there are so many times where we need large organizations and a lot of people to be able to mobilize. And so considering how we can create freedom for people at work without them having to become independent workers is a really important thing for us to crack. So it's a great chat. We talk about why freedom matters and how to implement it, whether you're a manager or employee. And also we take on the question about, we even talk about work-life balance and uh, what the School of Life has to say about that. So it's a fantastic chat. Should we uh, get on with it? Yep. Let's get on with the episode. Freedom and autonomy at work is something we talk a lot about on this podcast, and so we're really excited to be partnering with the School of Life for this very special episode. And we have Sarah Stein Lebrano joining us today from the School of Life. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Hello. How are you? Joining us remote, am, remotely, I'd like exactly to add. Exactly <laughs> as good as most people who are freelancing from their kitchen indefinitely. <laughs> Yeah, we were just talking before we started recording about how we're all very, we're recording on a Friday and we are really glad to see the end of the week, despite the fact that 
time is now a very abstract concept and there is no differentiation between weeks and weekends anymore. But um, yeah, there we are. Um, and hopefully not um, too ironically, we're going to be discussing freedom today. <laughs> yeah, the freedom uh, <laughs> to work that, how you want. <laughs> yeah, so, um, um, yeah, so why don't we kick off with, it's always helpful to make things super clear for everybody. What do we mean, Sarah, when we talk about freedom and autonomy, and particularly in the workplace context? Yeah, so I mean, of course, lots of people think about this different ways. I'm very interested in thinking about it in the context of work as self-governance. So the idea that you are choosing how you want to organize your own life, your own energy, your own resources, your own time. Um, and I'm also interested in thinking about freedom in the workplace as something that isn't only freedom from sort of a difficult boss or a set of unfair rules or a giant bureaucracy or a system of hierarchy that isn't good, but it's also positive freedom. So freedom to uh, do all kinds of things. And that requires us to have the skills we need to do whatever it is that we want uh, to achieve in the workplace. That means, for example, that you're not just um, free to achieve something if your boss isn't in your way, but you're only really free to achieve it if you have the skills and the knowledge that you need to to get it done. Perfect. And um, why does autonomy matter in the workplace? And why is why do we need it now more than any other time? This is a great question. So for the last 50 years or so, I'd say, and even earlier in some studies, uh, people have been, everyone from, you know, social scientists to um, even further back philosophers to uh, even kind of hardcore business consultant studies have found that people who have increased autonomy in their jobs tend to do better and they tend to do better in a lot of different ways. They're more effective, they get the job done faster, they are more creative, they work together in teams better, but they're also better off as human beings. They are uh, less likely to develop mental health conditions, their overall health is better. So we've known for a long time that autonomy is good. It's especially important for what um, Gallup, the big survey company, for example, calls engagement, whether the employee feels like they are actually emotionally invested in their work, and especially whether they're likely to leave that job. What's interesting now is that we're beginning to see that freedom uh, in the workplace is not only important for all those reasons that it has been for 50 years, but it's suddenly important in a sort of structural, material way, where before employees might be disengaged or engaged based on how much freedom they had, but they were less likely to leave their jobs and go completely out of the company and become an independent worker. So companies had this struggle where they were thinking, oh, you know, we need to give the workers enough freedom that we have retention and the really good employees stay and we don't have to hire constantly. But basically, if someone did leave the company, they could hire a new person with, to join the company. And now we're seeing a massive shift towards independent working. So people are leaving companies and they don't join a new company, they just work for themselves. Um, this is happening for a lot of sort of economic reasons. It's more possible for many people than ever before, especially relatively highly skilled workers. But in the US, for example, we see something like a 2% shift of the workforce every year towards independent working. And most of those people are not, are not transitioning because they got laid off and they have to be an independent worker because it's all they could find. They're actively choosing it, usually uh, on the basis of some form of freedom. So control over their schedule, control over the work they're doing, choice about which work to take on and so on. So for once, for various reasons, 
employees essentially have the upper hand in the hiring process and they can choose to work independently and companies have to grapple with freedom even more than ever before because not only do we know it's psychologically important but um, they won't be able to get the kind of workers that they want unless they uh, address this important need. I think that's something that Tiffany and I think about quite a lot and we've spoken about quite a lot on this podcast because in both of our experiences we've been we've left jobs or been you know forced out of jobs really in both of our cases and have found ourselves in independent work not necessarily by choice and yet um i mean speaking more i speak for myself here but i I think tiffany will agree with me that we've never felt as fulfilled as we do now in independent work however attention that we have and something kind of we think a lot about especially in relation to this podcast is this idea that it shouldn't be the case that you have to leave a job to feel free at work um Mm -hmm. and so i was kind of wondering sort of what you sort of think about all of that and do you think that people can truly be free at work whilst not being independent workers well i mean all freedom is relative right so uh so long as we have to work in order to earn a living there is some some real impin- impingement on our freedom as human beings but i think we can um we can find greater degrees of autonomy at work even in traditional organizations if those organizations are willing to take this challenge seriously and change the way that um work happens within that organization we can i think genuinely have greater autonomy in the workplace, even without becoming an independent worker. Um, and and I agree with you that this is really important and, and something I really care about because there are certain human endeavors that require us to have large groups of people, you know, um, it, it sort of seems banal, but if you think about it, um, some of the most important things that are happening even this week are things happening in large newspapers where people must work together in the NHS. Like there are certain... Uh, aspects of human endeavor where I think it's important for people to commit to an organization to some degree and um, and therefore we should make that tolerable and we should make that um, better for them or otherwise we'll, we'll see a diminishing of our society not that we shouldn't also have lots of independent workers but yeah I think it's really important and I think it is possible we talk about three different ways to do it in the um, white paper that we're working on at the School of Life three sort of basic moves that organizations can make um, and I'm happy to talk about them more, of course. Um, before we get onto that, because we, we definitely sure. will, um, you you just touched on this sort of mentioning the NHS, but how do you think that Corona will impact autonomy at work? Well, I mean, look, it's so early days because I, I really think uh, <laughs> psychologically, as somebody who, who's constantly reading psychology papers, the thing I'm trying most to do for myself is to pace myself and, and say, like, we don't know. We don't know what's going on at all in some ways. We do obviously know some important things about what we should be doing individually right now, like washing our hands or whatever, but uh, it's going to be such a long slog. And so I don't want to be overly, uh, I don't want to make too many predictions because I think that's the wrong mindset about an ongoing unknown challenge. Instead, we have to think about as this bizarre, strange marathon. Um, but I think one thing we can see already and, and, and interestingly, like we started focusing our research on autonomy at the School of Life before this crisis. So it was already important is that, you know, micromanaging is never a good idea, but it's essentially impossible once your employees are working in their kitchen. Uh, and it's anyway much less effective. And and so there there's an increased need for employees who can kind of manage themselves because they're not in the same physical space as you. Um, and also I think it, there have been, there's an increased ability for employees to say, 
look, I'm not even in the same space as you. I don't need to be micromanaged. Clearly, I can do my job for my house. So there's a pressure for autonomy in that way. I also think it's worth noting that anytime there's a crisis, um, to some degree, organizations need, need more capable employees who can make decisions quickly on their own. So, so autonomy is good in the sense that if we think about it as positive capabilities for employees to make decisions themselves about what to do and how to manage themselves, that's really important in a crisis. If everybody is coming to the boss and saying, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do, then, then actually you've only got one brain maximum thinking about what to do in the crisis in the way that is necessary. So I think that the very short version to your question is we're going to see um, that companies are basically as strong as they are able to give employees autonomy to, to deal quickly with crises effectively. And also um, we're seeing even more uh, pressure for employees to be able to work without anyone near them supervising them. In your paper, it talks about the tension between autonomy and security. Do you believe that it's possible to solve that tension and for large organizations to be able to offer security alongside autonomy? And how is it possible to resolve that tension? Yeah, I mean, I would say I don't think these are fundamentally opposed things all the time. So um, interestingly, there are jobs where we, we might think you know, like a tenured university professor, strangely, has a lot of security and a lot of autonomy. So they're not inherent contradictions. But I do think that um, very often there has been a trade-off in, in, in capitalism, in the workforce, between sort of a job where on the one hand you've got a pension, it's difficult to fire you, but equally, because uh, you're, you've been given all this security, the amount of control over you is quite high. And then people like independent workers who wear no one else is necessarily controlling you, but there isn't a lot of security. And um, we argue in our white paper that one of the reasons why we see such a big shift towards independent working is that in this calculation that many employees face between security and autonomy, or they have traditionally faced, they're beginning to feel that, um, that the security promise is false, that, that no organization nor the government, nor capitalism itself can offer them the kind of security that would be worth the trade-off in terms of autonomy. Um, so we've got a lot of statistics that like social trust is declining, trust in other people, trust in the government. More than half of people think that capitalism is doing more harm than good. Very few co people trust that their companies will help them adapt to the kind of technological change that is about to occur. So they see the, the sort of um, organizations they work for as unable to deal effectively with what's coming. And I guess what I would say is if an organization wants to try to offer both security and autonomy, at least at this point in our current juncture, it might be better for them to deal with autonomy first because, uh, you know, it's probably going to be difficult to resolve in any given organization the level of political and social unrest. Um, but if you show people that they have the the ability to solve problems on their own and, and, and have the freedom and the capability to do so, then they might feel more like the organization is also adaptable. And that at the very least, they can have that limited security that comes from an, an adaptive organization. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it really does. And I think it's interesting because this idea of security, Anna talks a lot about it with regards to freelance and the perception of what it means to be a freelancer. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, it's less secure. But on the other hand, full-time jobs aren't necessarily more secure. Um, 
mm-hmm. you know, people were made redundant. And I think right now what's happening um, is I'm seeing that, yeah, freelancers are losing work and it's a really scary time for us. But simultaneously, um, people with full-time jobs are either losing their work as well or they're frightened about it. They're frightened it's going to happen to them. So I yeah. think we're all in the same boat where this, literally this myth of security is being really rocked. Mm-hmm. And we might value security more after a time like this, but I think we don't, as you say, Sarah, don't trust that we're necessarily going to get it. And I just really like what you said about how companies should put autonomy first as an offering. I think that was a really nice thing to say. I think it's the honest position, especially in the in the society that we live in, the economic system that we live in. You know, right now entire industries are closed indefinitely. So the best offer that I could give if I were running a company would be to say, I am not going to limit you in how you adapt based solely on what I can sign off on after reading a long paper. You can make decisions, you can adapt, I'm going to empower you to do so. And that's the best security I can offer you in a world that isn't in fact very secure. Are there ever any types of employees who aren't interested in autonomy and don't want it? Or is it a universal yeah. design? I mean, I think we're all say? different. Yeah. But but I think, you know, uh, <laughs> we argue that it's, it's also like a fundamental human human desire. And, and I think it is to some degree. Um, I, you know, I think people place different. Uh, so one of the things we're, we're working on is a little model of autonomy based, of course, on other intelligent people's previous models, but we, we've just done our own spin, focusing a lot on learning as an aspect of autonomy, because if you think about it, um, one aspect of autonomy is the ability to do things actively, right? So you only have the freedom to, let's say, deal with the client if you actually know how to deal with the client. And we would say you have even more autonomy if you're constantly learning new skills. You're developing your autonomy the whole time because you're developing your capabilities. Um, and, and I think, you know, so there's sort of autonomy as learning, there's autonomy as competence, and there's autonomy as understanding the meaning of your work. And some people probably value some of these three things differently. Not every employee needs the same thing, of course. Um, but I think it's really important to kind of figure out which things that person cares about. If you're, if you're their manager or you're running a company or you're just working with another colleague, uh, like I place a really high premium on learning. And so I happen to work in an organization that's just the right medium size where every year there's some totally new thing that we have to do. And I find that really satisfying because nobody else in my organization has done exactly this thing. So I'm the first person to figure out like, great, how do we do online workshops on Zoom? And to me, that feels like autonomy because it's learning. But someone else might not care so much about learning, but they would really care about understanding directly the impact of their work. Um, And that's fine. Uh, But I think almost everyone has some version of this craving for autonomy because in a way, it's it's a desire to um, have control over your life to some degree, right? And I I think that is human and, and not just control in the rigid sense, but the ability to to make a life for yourself that is, is, is determined by your, your internal desires and um, what's meaningful to you. Do you think that curiosity and even ability to figure out how autonomy plays out for different people? And, you know, you've described how it, you know, it can mean different things to different people. Um, Do you think that, both in companies and maybe even in a, in possibly even also in our education system, do you think there is actually enough space for people to explore that for themselves and to work out what it means for them? Um, because again, kind of going back to my own experience, I feel like I've only really been able to go on that journey since becoming an independent worker. Um, yeah. 
So do you think there is that space no. for people to figure, figure that out? <laughs> At present, I would say that we're really far behind on this. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, if you think about the traditional education system, by which I mean m what most state schools in Britain look like, for that matter, um, and also to some degree just the way, the way that that then carries over into all these other forms of sort of discipline within our society, right? Um, certain norms around everything from politeness to, um, you know, how you behave at university, um, then, then I would say that we're not, we're not quite there yet, to put it lightly. Uh, and, and one of the ways we talk about the school of life is that um, most of us have been brought up to be good boys and girls, right? And to, and to kind of um, be taught that success means following the rules and getting the right grade based on worrying weeks in advance about what the exam is going to be like. And, um, and to kind of mask a lot of the other impulses that we might have to be creative or to explore. This sounds a bit cliche, but actually, um, you know, we see the end result of this all the time in the public aspect of the school of life where people come to how to find a job you love and they tell us, I've just been doing this for 20 years because I thought that's what it meant to be a good person. Follow the rules, you'll, you'll be successful. And now I'm 40 and I'm miserable. And so I think we would have to redesign the education system as well to encourage um, an image of success where it's about um, trying different things, choosing for yourself, setting up your own rubric for what a, a success looks like. And we're very much not there yet. But I do think it's interesting that actually there are trends in the workplace which are challenging people to rethink what education should look like. Because um, I don't know about you, but I don't think that the education I received, especially prior to university, was a good preparation at all for working life. All kinds of things I only figured out by kind of making an idiot of myself the first years of working life. Things about etiquette, things about um, throwing the rules out when you need to throw the rules out and making your own rules. That stuff is the opposite of what you're taught in education usually. Great. Well, um, I think after the short break, we can dive into how some solutions for this problem and some more stuff from your white paper, white paper and your model to kind of get to grips with this whole issue. In the coming weeks, many businesses are adjusting to a new reality, with employees and teams scattered to the four winds, facing weeks of isolation and remote working. In these trying circumstances, it will be emotional skills that employees need more than ever to adapt to new ways of working, communicate with and support one another, and to get through this period with resilience and calm. The School of Life virtual workshops give teams the opportunity to learn these emotional skills together from wherever in the world they might be. Hosted online, they're bespoke adaptations of the School of Life standard business workshops in a live interactive format. Each team member joins a live two-way video feed for a session taught by members of an expert faculty. They can ask questions, vote in polls and enter private breakout sessions for group exercises. All they need is a laptop and an internet connection. For more information about the School of Life's virtual curriculum and a tailored offering for your team, email business at theschooloflife.com and we'll put all of that in the show notes. So we've talked 
talked a lot about how important autonomy is for engaged, happy and productive workers. Let's delve into how we can actually go about creating autonomy within larger organisations. Um, as you say, that as I loved what you said, Sarah, about how we sometimes or often we need larger organisations in society. And so finding a way to make them function well is, is sort of imperative to our sustainability in the future. Um, to kick off, I mean, you talked about how managers should be able to figure out what people care about and how much they value autonomy. Are you able to tell us a bit more about how maybe a manager might go about working that out or developing those skills? Yeah, so we're actually building a little tool, and I mean tool in the softest sense, you know, it's not um, like a magical algorithm or something, but uh, one of the things that we've been working on for this white paper uh, is, is it just a chart where we kind of look at, um, I'm going to bring it up as I talk to you about it because I'm going to be even more eloquent. But essentially, <laughs> it's a tool to help people think about the different stages of autonomy in anybody's working life, really. And again, it has sort of one axis, which has to do with capability and learning. So increased amounts of capability and learning over time. And, you know, most people when they join an organization at the beginning of their working life are are quite clueless. Uh, there's a whole a bunch of research on actually even quite experienced employees. The first three months don't know a lot of what's going on and they spend all their time learning. And I think it's only a three months that you kind of break even with the company where you've done as much good as you've taken from the resources needed so you can learn, right? So um, learning is a huge part of work. And equally, we know that a lot of people leave jobs when they feel like they've been limited in this way. So, so they maybe they've uh, got to a point where they're competent at what they're being asked to do, but there isn't any room for growth. And they, it's not just that they want a higher salary or a fancier title. They want to be able to feel like they're learning new things all the time. So we've got one access that has to do with learning and we've got another access that has to do with understanding and choosing to some degree, the meaning of your work. This is something I think really appeals to freelancers a lot of the time, but to everybody, um, you know, many people will say, I don't, I don't even understand why this is, happening why i'm being asked to do this and as strange as it sounds um, a great deal of autonomy is found just in knowing why are we choosing to take this direction uh, it's a really basic thing but later on as you sort of move up the steps of autonomy what's even more meaningful is to be able to to choose to some degree um, you know and, and obviously this is limited if you work in the nhs and you're a doctor uh let's say <laughs> relevant example this week you probably aren't going to decide every aspect of health policy yourself as a doctor working in a particular hospital but if you feel like you have a mechanism where you'll be heard where you can feedback and say i think we should take this challenge on this way um research suggests that you'll be a lot happier and also healthier if you feel like there's some steer over the meaning of your work and the purpose of it right um and I think the NHS is quite sort of inherently, we find the meaning of it quite easily, but a lot of people are in jobs that are much less obvious what the, what the underlying good is. Um, and so one of the things that helps people become more autonomous in the workplace is being able to look at what they do and evaluate which bits of this are meaningful. How can I do more of the meaningful bits? Um, how can I choose what I want to do next? So to get to the question, sorry, about um, how can we, how can companies even big companies give people more space and maybe managers as well. I think what's important is if somebody comes in at the entry level in an organization, to be honest with them up front, you're going to start out in a position where, um, and I'm just going to pull up this little model and read you some of it. But the, the short version is you're going to start in a position where um, someone else is telling you what to do most of the time, for, at least to start, because you don't know this role. So someone is telling you, these are your seven tasks for the day. But, but to be able to tell that person, once you get good at these tasks, 
um, then I'm going to become less hands-on. So once, once you've managed this bit, next, I'm just going to tell you what needs to be done and you'll figure out the steps. And then I'm not necessarily going to tell you what needs to be done. I'm just going to give you an update and ask you to set your own goals. And then eventually you're going to become um, autonomous enough. Maybe it will take five years or 10 years where you're telling me what the goals are, right? <laughs> um, and, and again, it doesn't, in some organizations, there isn't even this management structure, but the idea of moving from being told what to do to choosing how to do things, but the, the bigger picture goals being set by someone else to setting the bigger picture goals. That's something that I think most people could theoretically move towards in the course of their career. And I think it's really important for organizations to think about whether they're set up for that. Um, and I think it's really important for managers to think about how that would work for each individual person in their team, right? Can this person eventually set their own goals? What would it look like? What are the steps in between? Um, do they do the project plan the next time? More importantly, do they choose, you know, what the next project is? Um, and this comes gradually because again, if you, if you give someone something that's too big of a challenge, they actually don't find it empowering or um, freedom inducing, they find it overwhelming. So you want to kind of gradually step-by-step -step, set challenges. Um, there's a psychologist who's written on this a lot called Daniel Pink and he talks about the idea that people want to develop mastery and competence, but they can only do that if they uh, kind of have a bit of a stretch goal and then they hit the stretch goal. And then there's a new challenge that's a bit harder and then they have the satisfaction of you know, doing that one well. So gradual devolution of autonomy based on increased competence each time. And then equally, um, increasingly letting the employee kind of set their own source of meaning and, and their own source of learning. And we also talk about even setting learning in other areas of your life. So one of the things I like about our workshops at the School of Life, not to plug too, too literally, is that um, almost all of them are relevant for the rest of life. They're things like self-awareness and calm and resilience and decisiveness that people tend to bring into their other life goals, not just their work-related ones. And um, I think part of, part of a sense of freedom within your working life is the ability to steer a course that's also good for the rest of your life. And, and that includes empowering people with the kinds of skills that let them do that. And for people who you know, are listening and thinking, oh my God, I want, I would love some more autonomy at work. Um, how could they go about even introducing that kind of conversation with their manager? Well, they could take our tool, which is coming out next month, but also I think they could say, you know, um, this is sort of in a way, just a different version of this question. What do I want to be doing in five years? And I think traditionally organizations sometimes look too, um, to kind of like materially, for lack of a better word, or a kind of status symbol wise, what that question means. So they would say, okay, in five years, you want to be promoted and you want to be earning X. And I think um, what's often needed is a different conversation as well, maybe not instead, but as well, saying, in five years, I want to be really good at the following things. And I want to be setting this and that kind of goals for myself and just reporting back to you on how I've done them. Um, and, and again, you, I've sort of got little descriptors in our tools to make this more obvious. <laughs> um, but I've got kind of um, things like, you know, at level two of autonomy, we'd say management is explaining the meaning of the work and they're explaining any changes in strategy. And then at the next bit, it would be kind of like employees set the strategy and set their own targets and evaluate themselves. And then at the next level, it's employees collectively decide the priorities and explore the desired impact on the world, redirecting their energies accordingly. So if I were an employee, I would kind of come in and say, here's what I imagine myself doing at step two, where I'm kind of 
at least getting an explanation from you of what the strategy is. Step three, this is how I'd like to design the strategy in the future if I'm good at doing what I'm doing in my report this year. And step three, eventually I'd really like to be able to decide some of these priorities. So you could kind of ask for these steps. Or similarly, you could ask for more uh, appropriately sized challenges that help you learn and get new capabilities. Or really good training for that matter. So just so I'm clear, in a way you're talking about a toolbox which includes decisiveness, resilience, confidence, like a, a series of emotional skills. And once you are better trained in them, you're far better equipped to either be autonomous and give freedom the, flex, the freedom and flexibility for your team to be autonomous. Is that correct? Um, or have I... Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I would say the thing that's tricky about the emotional skills is they're wound up in every step. So if you if you need to, like every time that you tell an employee, okay, I'm going to give you um, much more control over this aspect of your working life. It's only worth doing that if they feel like they they have the ability to do that sort of psychologically, if they're equipped to handle the very real challenge of decision making, for example, we have a whole class on decisiveness, and, and you know people face uh, face a real cognitive load when they have to make decisions. A certain number of decisions a day, and we're worn out. We need to know about that. We need to be able to navigate that. We face um, a lot of the time pressure from other people with decision making. This is one of the main challenges in leadership as well. We think I've got to please the people around me, um, and and kind of trying to navigate that emotional psychological pressure. Unless employees can, can kind of navigate those things, um, then it, it might actually be counterproductive to give them more autonomy if they're just going to feel overwhelmed. And we see a lot of people in positions of, say, middle management who think, oh my gosh, I thought this was going to be really great and actually I'm just pressured from above and below and I feel completely overwhelmed. So the idea is that these emotional skills are the thing that lets each stage uh, function, right? That, that lets you get through each stage and, and develop your own capabilities and be capable of doing these new kinds of freedoms. It's interesting you use the example of decisiveness because when we were talking earlier about the effect of this kind of sudden mass, everyone working at home, you talked about how employees are going to have to be more decisive because you everyone's not around you to sort of help make decisions. Um, but just to drill into the concept of decisiveness, it's something I find really fascinating. And I think as you say, you can take these skills into your um, life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, if anything, actually, I find work decisiveness really easy and then life decisiveness <laughs> much harder. But um, yeah. that's, that's, that's for a therapy session. But, um, <laughs> um, it's all therapy. <laughs> um, the work training is too. <laughs> I often use this podcast to, uh, <laughs> to, to solve your own problems. <laughs> solve my problems. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. um, but on that note, when you talk about decisions, um, do you, when, if we're making loads of decisions every day, do, do, and you talked about a certain number that we can handle, it, does your life decision storage, like how many, what I should have for lunch or what I should wear or whatever, does that deplete from how many work decisions you can make or a work and life? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Fairly I mean, separate? Think, you know, that the mind has natural categories for work and, and life. I mean, we, this is part of why people always talk about, you know, Obama or Steve Jobs or whoever have these sort of, um, like they have their their uniforms right and the logic behind having a uniform that you wear every day is it's one last decision if all you do is make decisions all day so so absolutely you know and then i think to be honest uh, this is a rant for another time but i also think our society is set up very badly it overwhelms us with choice because of 
everything from consumerism to bureaucracy. You know, we, we spend ages, I think half my life is ladmin, life admin, and a lot of it is unnecessary. Um, we, could, we could design a better system. Um, and I say this not so much as a, as a political radical, but as a designer, some of the, these problems are fixable. But right now we're faced with constant um, cognitive load, loads of emails, loads of decisions. And um, being able to navigate that is part of what allows us to do well at work and in life. I think it was really interesting when you were, you know, we've touched on how um, emotional skills have applications both within the workplace and without and outside of the workplace. Mm-hmm. Is it something that if you start working on your emotional skill development outside of the workplace, then it's going to make it easier for you to start tackling things like talking to your boss about how you can have more autonomy at work yeah. um, or kind of like which way around is it? It's kind of a sort of, I'm seeing it as a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Where should you kind of start with your emotional skill development? Which area of your life? Uh, which area of life? Well, I mean, I think it, it, both are good. Uh, you know, uh, that's a terrible answer, but there isn't an obvious, it's not like we, we do design programs at the school of life. So we, you know, if you came to us and described organization to us, we could be say, Oh, it sounds like these are the, the challenges and this is what's worked previously and this size company and so on. But, um, but we are holistic in the end as human beings in the, in the sense that one thing always bleeds into another. And I don't think emotional skills really sit in either place. Um, ultimately there are no, you know, you're going to make decisions in your work life and your home life and they're going to affect each other and they're completely intertwined to some degree. Uh, we have a saying at the school of life, which is, um, you know, there is no such thing as work life balance. Anything worth pursuing unbalances your life. And, uh, I, I realize that, you know, I'm not arguing that you should never turn off your work phone because, uh, I'm definitely one of the people who needs to do that for my well being sometimes. But I do think the idea that these are completely separate spheres is, um, a beautiful ideal and rarely fully realizable. And the bit that's particularly difficult to separate is the psychology. It's the same brain, isn't it? It's the same mind. Uh, yeah, we often talk about how we don't believe in work-life uh, balance. And so it's music to our ears to hear that it's not just <laughs> our own little crackpot theory. Um, but what I think it's, I think what's particularly interesting to tie it back to autonomy is what we're saying is for people, people, you can't just be free in your day life and then not feel free at work. I think that makes you feel inauthentic and frustrated and the fact that work and life do blend and you are the same person operating in both, it makes perfect sense that um, we want to feel autonomous in both aspects and how it's really important for um, you know, large organizations to do what they can to bring that feeling of, of autonomy to their workers. Yeah. And to genuinely give it to them. Right. And I think this is the other, this is like the hard news aspect of what we're writing is uh, we don't want a cheap solution and we don't think that cheap solutions work. So you can't just kind of like run a vague well-being program and you can't just, uh, you know, uh, offer sort of minimum types of employees choosing X or Y. It's not enough for them to choose how the cafeteria works. Uh, It's really the fundamental feeling of control over what hours are they going to work? Do they have to be in the office all the time? How does this problem get solved? If there's a major challenge, do you trust them to deal with it? And are they constantly increasing in their capability at work and the amount of choice they have over how things get done? If not, they might leave. And even if they don't leave, they might disengage. And uh, we don't think there's a a way out of this conundrum except actually giving people as much freedom as you can. Um, So yeah, we really encourage that. But absolutely, it's mental freedom as well. We talk about 
the Stoics said that the only real freedom is the, um, the freedom within your mind, right? We cannot control so much of how the world is going, but the little bit of freedom we have is often contained in the way that we can think about things and, and understand them and react to them emotionally. And so that's an aspect of autonomy as well. Is there any bottleneck or reason that um, certain companies might hesitate to seek to provide a more autonomous workplace that you've come across? Yeah, loads. I mean, I think, first of all, it's cultural, as you pointed out. If our education system suggests to us that if we're all just good little boys and girls, we'll do very well in life, then to get out of that mindset all of a sudden, as say an HR team or a CEO, is very difficult. And I would actually say that, you know, I have a lot of very critical things to say about the tech industry. Um, but uh, they've done, at least in terms of some ways that they work with their employees, some ways are really destruct destructive, but some tech organizations have understood this, that, that you know, if you want agility with your workers, you have to give them autonomy. The two cannot function without each other. Um, so there's, a, there's at least like this idea in the tech industry, however complex the realization, but I think a lot of other industries don't even necessarily recognize um, this, or they don't recognize it enough um, so so there's a cultural aspect and then I would say also there's there's kind of this idea that um, you know I think this is actually part of the problem with management structures to some degree is that you feel like the person you manage you have to tell your boss if you're the manager I'm very interested in the conundrums of middle managers um, because I think they're symbolic of everything else that happens to the organization if you think oh I'm managing Fred, but if Fred screws up, it's on me, then you don't, then you feel very anxious about giving Fred autonomy. You have to kind of think your boss is also invested in the idea that Fred is going to mess up a few times and it's fine. Right. So, so there's a kind of willingness to have failure that is necessary for people to be granted autonomy. And this is actually one of the big themes that's repeated in our workshops and in the work we do and what our clients say. Um, I think that, you know, we're not very good at that as a species in some ways, but we're certainly not very good at it in our current society, which is quite perfectionistic. And um, one of the main aspects of psychological maturity, which allows for this kind of autonomy in the workplace, is willingness to have people do it and screw up um, regularly, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you use the sort of tech industry um, example, because I've I worked in startups for 10 10 plus years before I was uh, booted out and uh, went independent. But um, <laughs> um, and uh, it's interesting because I always got to work in an extremely autonomous way. And yeah. I think that that's partly because startups are all about growth. Things are moving so fast that you have to just let your employees um, be autonomous at a certain level. Um, and so I actually feel really grateful that that was my experience of work. Um, there are lots of things that weren't I'm less grateful for about it, but that, but that was a real thing that stuck out for me was the ability mm -hmm. to be autonomous and um, yeah. learn really fast. And the, and, and the other interesting cultural thing about startups is they almost embrace failure as though it's something to prove that you're like really doing it right. And that, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, that move fast break things, even though Facebook's a bit um, out of fashion these days, but um, that used to be the attitude. And so again, their really failure was almost actively welcomed and and those two things are really rare in the majority of other more traditional workplaces and i think it's interesting and hopefully um the more the more modern as work progresses people will begin to embrace those things as well and um, because 
yeah, being comfortable with failure, as you say, is part of the key to autonomy. Yeah. And I would say that the school of life has this kind of weird thing where we sort of agree with the tech industry that failure is necessary and letting your employees fail is really important. Um, we would say that the risk of not letting your employees fail is much higher because in that case you're, you're micromanaging them and no one's adapting. But the difference is that I think the narrative in the tech industry is usually you're going to break loads of things and then you're going to be really successful because you've broken all the things in the past. And at the School of Life, we actually would say um, you're going to break loads of things because you're human and you may or may not succeed at the end because actually the main activity when people are trying to do something that looks like success and failure in a rubric of success and failure, the main thing we do is, is fail. Failure, we have a whole class on how to fail the school of life and we emphasize from the start that it really is about how to fail. It's not about how to succeed. This is not fun, fun stuff that organizations necessarily want to hear. Um, but we think it's actually the realistic um, estimation of how human endeavor goes. You fail all the time and, and it may or may not lead you to succeed better in the future, but being able to tolerate that failure will at the very least allow you to adapt when it happens. I think that's um, a really beautiful note to end this on. This was such a brilliant um, episode and such a great chat. I definitely kind of, it's given me such a, so much food for thought and so much to kind of think about and question whether truly I am free in <laughs> all aspects of my life and work or not. <laughs> it's a really big question. It's a deep philosophical one. And I think, again, it's part of why it's really uh, in the most uh, unsentimental way, uh, enjoyable doing the work that we're doing in our team because um, we're trying to look at these questions of working life in a way that isn't just sort of coaching and managing, but is the big philosophical questions. We spend basically more time at work than any other activity but sleeping. And so we think we need to look at the problems of working life in this holistic, human, philosophical, meaningful way. And we're trying to do that um, as best we can. I've been really inspired by this chat and um... I, as, as I've already said, Anna and I have adored the School of Life for so long and it must be so fulfilling to work somewhere that is um, really making game-changing moves in how we work and I think that will really positively impact people's lives, which is what this podcast is all about. So we really appreciate you coming on and telling us about our freedom. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so Thank much. You. It's been a real pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. <laughs> Bye. 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 Thanks so much to the School of Life for Business and Emotional Skills for the Workplace for partnering with us for this special episode. You'll find all their information in the show notes. Thank you very much and goodbye. Bye. Bye.